Hi, I'm Dr. Chuck Fetters, and you are listening to a Help and Hope resource produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. We're talking today with Paul and Jill Miller, and it's a conversation we know will encourage you in your own personal life. Now, Paul is the author of numerous books, including A Praying Life. He is the executive director of See Jesus, a global discipleship ministry, which he founded in 1999 to help Christians and non-Christians alike see Jesus. Uh, Since that time, Paul has taught more than 100 seminars, written a dozen interactive Bible studies, and Paul has released three books focused on see Jesus' core themes. That is the person of Jesus, love, and prayer. Jill is uh, Paul's wife, and Jill has her own list of amazing accomplishments, including starting uh, businesses, writing curriculum. She's known for her sense of humor and her wonderful faith. And with all of their amazing accomplishments that really do offer help and hope to hurting people, perhaps the most loved one is raising their six children and enjoying life as grandparents to 12 children. Now, Paul and Joe, we have 14 grandkids, so we're a little bit ahead of you. We want to welcome you. It's great to have you with us here today. Sharon, why don't you uh, say a word of introduction as well? Well, Paul and Jill, I am so excited about the conversation we're going to have uh, because your work has had such an impact on me personally. Uh, I was first introduced to your work, uh, A Praying Life. It just transformed my view of prayer. And so I'm excited to see what God is going to uh, offer through you today, not just for me personally, but for the so many that are going to be hearing your story. You know, when we were grieving the loss of our son, Mark, people ahead of us in the grief journey helped us by sharing their own stories Mm -hmm. and encouraging us that we weren't insane or hopeless as we tried to reconcile God's love with his sovereignty. And we can see that likewise, you have helped thousands of hurting people by sharing your redemptive story of how raising your daughter, Kim, who was diagnosed with autism, opened your hearts and eyes to treasures you might not have experienced without her. Kim is now in her early 30s, and we know that she's beloved and treasured by your family and and many, many others, many who haven't even met her. In our conversation, we want you to reach back into those early years of raising Kim and share how Kim's birth and life brought challenges, but also opened your hearts to treasures that you say you would not have experienced without her. So welcome, Paul and Jill. We're so grateful for this conversation. Well, thank you, Chuck and Sharon. It's good to talk with you and share with you some of the things that that we've been through. So we hope, uh, you know, I I, I love uh, 2 Corinthians 1, where, where Paul says that our sufferings flow over into other people's lives as comfort, just as Christ's sufferings flow over into our lives as comfort. And, And that's I, I think that's probably the heart of ministry. So we're delighted to be with you. Thank you. Uh, you both freely acknowledge uh, that it took uh, took some time for you to recognize those treasures. So uh, I want to read a quote from your book, A Praying Life, where you say, figuratively speaking, our house did burn down when Kim was born. We soon realized the house burning down was a gift. Uh, God had a better house for us. The old one needed to go. Jill and I pray because we are helpless against the onslaught of life. When I pray over a problem, that problem begins to sparkle with the energy of God. Strange things happen. 
Now, I know when I first read that quote, I thought your house actually did burn down. <laughs> but uh, I've learned since then that this was figuratively speaking. So how did the birth of Kim burn down your house? My, my house had the foundation of self-righteousness, Chuck, to the point that I remember before Kim was born in our neighborhood, we, I had a neighbor who came up to me um, who was struggling raising three kids. They were pretty close together. And I, too, had three kids that were pretty close together. I guess she saw me as someone who had it all together. And that was the self-righteousness. And I thought I had it all together. And I remember when I saw this gal, after she said, how do you do it, Jill? As I was washing the car, Chuck, I just turned around and I said, you know, Carolyn, I just wake up in the morning and I decide what I'm going to do. And I do it. And even when I say those words, I, I could just... I have a reaction even now to them. So I'm very thankful that that house burnt down because God just ripped away all my self-righteousness. When did you begin to see through Kim that God had a better house for you? I'm kind of a slow learner. I always say that I'm in God's special ed classroom and my beanie is spinning in the front row. (laughs) (laughs) It was a very long process, and what he really did was he really stripped away everything from me. He stripped away my strength because God's made me physically pretty strong because Kim was up every, oh, my word, she was up about eight times a night. Kids with autism struggle with sleep. So when she was up, I was up. And then you had to be on for the during the day with the other three kids you had, so it was pretty rough that way. And then he stripped me. She was quite ill. So I really lost contact with a lot of friends. I couldn't even get to church. So that he stripped me of friends and fellowship and health. And it was just me and him. It was me and Jesus. And I really, it took me a few years, but I really saw Christ um, in a way that I never would have before. I think, um, you know, as I'm listening to you talk, Jill, it's taking me back to those early years after the death of our son, Mark, and his friend, Kelly. And I remember writing words very similar to that in my journal. It's just me and you, Jesus, because I felt so completely helpless in uh, that really dark place of grief. And I, the treasures, uh, the passage that came to mean so much to me is from Isaiah 45, where he says, I'll give you treasures in the darkness, mm-hmm. riches stored in secret places, mm-hmm. so that you will know I am the Lord, your God, mm-hmm. the one who calls you by name. Amen. And I recognize that those treasures were designed to remind me that it was Jesus and me, that he called me by name, but he was Lord, my God. And the treasures that come from that place were priceless. So I'm thinking about the two of you, Paul and Jill, and I know that you are people of deep personal faith. How did Kim's diagnosis affect you spiritually? The first three kids, honest to goodness, uh, Sharon, I actually had them at times all dressed with the same kind of material. Like I had little dresses for Courtney and Ashley and little pants made for John out of the same material. I, along with that self-righteousness, was this perfection. 
Kim wasn't perfect, you know, and uh, we knew pretty, pretty much right out of the gate that something was wrong. Cause the first night after she was born, I remember uh, I was alone and they were testing her for uh, fluid on her brain and we knew something was going on. And I remember being in the dark and it was like, God said to me, you're on a road, Jill. And right now there's two ways to go. You can go the left to the left, and that's going to be a road of bitterness. Or you can go to the right, and I'm going to take you on that road. And we don't know where you're, you don't know where you're going, but you have to trust me. And I remember saying that night, I'm going to the right. I'm going to the right. It was a slow peeling of that self-righteousness and that perfection that her diagnosis really affected me. And it was slow, Sharon. It was a very slow process. And it still goes on. You know, it still goes on today. Kim's 36. As I'm listening to you talk, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, it's interesting how grief is similar but different. But that choice that you're talking about, I think, is what each one of us faces when we're in such a dark place. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I can become known as the mother of an ill child or mm-hmm. I can become known as somebody who loves Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, so our identity seems to be wrapped up in those choices and how hard it is. And I especially appreciate what you said about it takes time and really it takes a lifetime. Mm-hmm. I think it must take a lifetime. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting, uh, Jill, when you were using the illustration of to the right or to the left, uh, I remember the night um, Mark was killed, mm-hmm. and we we did not know yet that he was dead. Mm-hmm. We were rushing to the hospital, mm-hmm. and we actually drove past the accident scene. And when we got to the hospital, to the emergency room, I had been there so many times as a pastor. Mm-hmm other people. And I knew their routine like the back of my hand. And when we ran up to the desk, Sharon beat me to the front desk. And she looked at the nurse behind the desk and said, we are Mark's parents. Where is he? And I watched that nurse because I knew her first movement was going to tell us where we were. If she moved to her right, we were going to the death room. If we moved to her left, we were going to see Mark because he was still alive. And I knew that. And as soon as she started moving to the right, I stopped her. I said, I know the routine. Is he dead? And she looked at me and shook her head. Yes. And I said, what about Kelly? It was Mark's friend. She said, she's she's dead, too. It was a journey we were being forced to take to the right. We, we just did not want to go there. Yet we had to embrace each other and scream and yell and question God and all those other things that normal people do. I say that in, in long preparation for the question, Paul, I want to ask you. Just released a book called A Loving Life. And you talk about Hesed, uh, a dying to self-love. and um, You know, there's a part of us that when we have to move in a direction or we do not want to go, that God has directed for us, that there is a sense in which we have to learn how to die to self uh, and even die to self-love. So, Paul, can you can you expand on um, what Jill said and can you expand on the idea of Hesed? What do you mean by that and how does that fit our context here? Hesed 
is a, a Hebrew word for covenant love. So it combines the idea of love with commitment. And we don't really have a word that does that. So it's translated all kinds of different ways in the Old Testament. But I, I probably the best one is you, as, as you know, is probably covenant love or committed love, or I like to say love without an exit strategy. It's where you combine an act of the will of your will and saying, I'm going to endure in this love, uh, no matter what the cost. And it really is Calvary love. We tend to think of love as a mere feeling and it does have warm feelings in it. I don't want to denigrate the feelings of love, but, but they really are a cascade of feelings. You know, some of the feelings are, are joy, but sadness and, um, and, and in fact, you know, that kind of love always takes you on a journey. It's kind of abstract, but one of the, um, stories that I start in a praying life and pick up in uh, a loving life that I can even update you on gives you a feel of that. It's when Kim with her autism, one of her little quirky things is she paces or she'll just do repetitive things. They call it perseverating. And they're just like bizarre things that you have no idea why she's doing them. And she just gets stuck in this rut. And at one point I, I called Kim a bad habit machine. And one of these bad habits that she came up with all on her own was pacing in the early morning hours, like four o'clock, 4 a.m. Her bedroom was on the third floor. Ours was on the second floor. And she would pace back and forth from her room. She'd go out in the hallway, flip on the light, run back to bed, stay there five minutes and then go out into the hallway again. And, and turn off the light. And she just keeps cycling through this. Like, what, what's with the light? Who knows, you know? And, and Jill and I, we always go with the efficient way. And the efficient way was just to tell Kim back, get back in bed. So we would <laughs> tell Kim to get back in bed. And because we were separated by a whole floor and several doors, we sort of had to yell at her. Because I can just sort of tune it out, whatever, you know, kind of maybe a guy thing. And Jill just would hear it. So when we would have devotions, Jill would go down the first floor. So we'd wake up like at, you know, quarter to six or something like that and have devotions. Jill would be on the first floor. I'd stay on the second floor. And then Jill would hear Kim pacing. So she would <laughs> yell at me so I could yell at Kim. <laughs> That's great. And so all of that would sometimes happen at once where Jill's yelling at me to yell at Kim. I'm yelling at Kim. So Jill doesn't yell at me. <laughs> And then Kim is pacing upstairs, ignoring both of us. And I mean, that's kind of the world of Hesed love is where God gives you these. He he overloads your system, you know, and Jill and I are managers and efficient. You know what I mean? We're, you know, we have all the ingredients for a good quality Pharisee. And so eventually, so this was in December of 07. I started to get out of bed when Kim was pacing and Jill said to me, what are you going to do? Go yell at Kim. I said, no, that hadn't worked for 10 years. So I was going to go pray with her. And, and Jill started laughing and said, what do you mean 10 years? It's been 20. But anyway, you could argue that, but it's just kind of like that dying. Like, so there's a dying to self there, dying to efficiency 
anytime you're in committed love with something that doesn't work, it strips you of your efficiency, of your self-will, of your, uh, you know, of sort of the, of the easy, quick way. And that's when you go into the world of God. And it's such a simple world. It's, it, it's a world where you begin to ask him for help. So I just went up and prayed and asked God to help me with him. And so he just does stuff like, I mean, that, that's just a, such a simple story. And out of that has come this whole cascade of the way God answered that prayer, what uh, hesed love looks like and dying to self as opposed to sort of efficient American way of handling life. Paul, um, as I said, I had read Praying Life, and I think your story is a good example of the message, one of the messages of both books. God is in the mundane moments. It, it seems like that's where he works an awful lot of miracles that we don't notice unless we're praying. Right. Out of dependence, out of desperation, yes. uh, where we have to, we have nowhere else to go because nothing is working. Right. So I'm, I'm thinking that uh, parenting Kim and parenting all six of your children has taught you a lot about prayer. And in fact, um, on uh, page 47 of your, of your book, A Praying Life, you wrote, when our kids were two, five, eight, 12, 14, and 16, I wrote this in my prayer journal. Amazing how when I don't pray in the morning, evil just floods into our home. I absolutely must pray. Oh God, give me the grace to pray. It took me 17 years to realize I could not parent on my own. What was that like? You're saying it took you 17 years. Was there a moment where you said, okay, that's it? Uh, just like with Kim, after 10 or 20 years, whichever one it is, you said, okay, I just need to pray. What was that like as a parent uh, learning, I, I got to pray? Or as you said later, they're going to kill each other. Probably actually, now that I think about it, it was over a period of about six years. Uh, from about 90 through 96, where I just kept where you think you've hit bottom and then you discover another trap door and you go down, you know, it's just and it's actually the pattern during this time. I, I, I had realized that at the beginning that the pattern of the normal Christian life was a reenacting of Jesus death and resurrection. And uh, I, I like to call it the J curve because the letter J forms the shape of going down into death and then up into resurrection. Mm. And it's in those my experiences. It's in those long deaths, those long going down where you learn to pray. You're repeatedly confronted with your it's not something you sort of learn once. You, you do have to learn it, relearn it. But it becomes a form of knowing um, where where you absolutely it happens so many times. You're, you're so often in this dying that 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 you simply know it becomes a part of your the big fancy word is epistemology. It just becomes a part of your epistemology, your 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 whole way of knowing life that you can't do life on your own. So eventually it's not something you ha have to learn. It's just something you, you know about the structures of life that you don't, you and what you do is not at the center, that you're not weaving the story that you inhabit. And there were many little stories in that. I actually think a, a crucial one was a camping trip I took the kids on. Absolute disaster. And that was probably the beginning of my really serious, desperate prayers for our family. 
as I'm thinking about parents who are listening, of course, you're down the road, you've processed a lot of this, and it may sound like, well, it's just pray, you know, just you just need to pray. And of course, that is, it's very simple, we just need to pray. But I would imagine that a lot of that prayer journey is what you call in a loving life, the lamenting before the Lord. That uh, that process, it's like God's economy of how he does things, of that going down to the bottom part of that J right. is a lamenting period before you can experience the resurrection. And yet the resurrection requires dying to self. Am I on the right track with that? Yeah, I, I would say, yes, all that kind of weaves together. And let me punt over to Jill, because it was really through Jill that... I uh, learned to lament, and Jill is a much better lamenter than I am. She just does it naturally. And I wrote two new chapters for a re-release of A Praying Life, and I wrote them on lamenting. And I opened the chapters describing Jill's teaching, me her Jill's first lament, the first time I ever encountered a lament, was we were just married, and Jill was 18 and I was 19. And, oh my. Um, yeah, we got married young. And we were babies. <laughs> we were babies. I know our kids, we would, you know, they would say, uh, but it, it was a lament for me. Which, and I, I just, I mean, I'm a natural born blue blood Presbyterian, and every part of my upbringing dislikes laments. I mean, it just, mm. they're unbalanced. They're, in God's face, they're brutally honest, they are unedited, they're not theologically correct sometimes, they're, they're, they, they just have a rawness to them. And, but there, there is a purity of them. I mean, what I, people read them as unbelief, but they're actually filled with faith because they, they bring together the, the the confidence in God, God, you said a confidence in God's word, a trust in God mm-hmm. with a with a clear eyed look at the mess we're in. So mm-hmm. so there they bring together two things that just recoil from one another. Uh, one mm-hmm. is God, you said you would not give us a harm daughter. But then the reality is you gave us a harm daughter. And they hold God mm-hmm. to his word. And God loves that. I mean, it's just it's just amazing mm-hmm. how much he he uh, loves that. Mm-hmm. And throughout our marriage, Jill often has led in laments. So we pray together now, you, you know, so it's mm-hmm. not you, you know, I would actually say our marriage is a series of laments for one another that God has answered. Mm-hmm. And now we lament together for different things in our lives, mm-hmm. you know, some of which is is just very you know very private things that that we lay before god one time uh i was called to visit a man that i knew of but he had stopped attending church and he was he was not churched at any local congregation somebody called me and told me that his 12 year old son was uh went to bed with a headache and the father oh. carried him out in a body bag the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they, uh, so Sharon mm-hmm. and I went over to their home to minister to them. 
And uh, long story short, when they brought his body to our church for the service, uh, I was the only one that was there before the service actually started. And I stood over the casket and I looked at this little boy who played basketball with our son, Mark. And I looked at him and I said to the Lord, Lord, please don't ever let this happen to us. <laughs> and three months later, it happened to us. Uh, and it was in the hospital where when you use the word lament mm -hmm. that I remember holding Mark, he was dead in my arms and saying to God, you have got to show me that everything I have ever taught or preached is true. Amen. Because right, right now I don't believe it, that you are my father and I am a father and I would never treat my children this way. Is that what you call lamenting? Yes. I love that, especially the line, right now I don't believe it. And mm. a lot of times laments don't even have that little phrase right now. Mm. But the faith in that is that you're talking to God. It is faith at its purest, stripped mm. of all support. And where you're just, you are in God's presence, doubting him and asking for help. And it's interesting, we just a one, a quick comment on laments. The Greek mind, the, even though the church, the early church rejected the influence of the Greek mind formally, particularly in, in its the face of Gnosticism, the Greek mind imprinted the church. Uh, and we lost that Jewish lament tradition. And, and I, I, I have done this a number of times in seminars where I take uh, a several lament psalms. I usually do it with the beginning of Psalm 6 and Psalm 10. And uh, I use the message translation and I, I set people up to be a little critical by saying, I got these from an edgy book of prayers. And uh, and I, I say, to, what, just evaluate them for me. Put on your Christian judging hats. And and people are very quick to say they're disrespectful. They're you know they're aggressive. They seem to offend our sense of the honor and dignity of God and the love of God, the rightness of God, the the faithfulness of God. And then I show them. The the actual Psalms, I'll, I'll use the ESV, which really is not that. I mean, the you know, the message brings it to life, but it, it's exactly the same content. You know, God, where where are you? Why aren't you listening? Are you asleep? And that that whole honest way of praying has has really been lost to the church. But you're seeing people beginning to rediscover it. It, it really is. Very faithful. The interesting thing is, as I'm thinking through the, my my own journey with laments, is uh, there is a fine line, I think, between truly lamenting in the biblical sense of the word and crossing over a line into blasphemy. Um, I remember uh, I had no one to talk to in terms of my grief journey, and so I contacted my friend who's the president of Westminster Seminary, uh, one of the brightest minds I know, and I asked him if he would meet with me. And I shared my heart, and the heart was really the heart of, as, as we're calling it now, the heart of a lament. And, and I said to him, uh, Pete, at what, point, at what point do I stop truly questioning God's love for me 
and get into the arena of of real serious blasphemy. Do you care to comment on that? Yeah, I have three rules, see if I can think of them, that just come from uh, just looking at the difference between a lament and what I would call complaining or grumbling. Let me draw that line, okay? Because the classic example is the Israelites in the desert. And so I would say complaining that leads to rebellion. And one of the th- one of the things that a lament does that if you contrast it with the Israelites is uh, the lament is to God versus the the grumbling is to one another and to Moses. So it's who you are directing it to. They never directed those to God. They're always complaining to Moses or to one another. So the grumbling and the complaint has the wrong direction. Another huge difference, and it might be the most important difference, is the will. That that within a, a biblical lament is you are surrendering to God even as you're pouring your heart out. In other words, you're you are obeying. Like as you know, Naomi is lamenting as she is obeying returning to Bethlehem. So her heart is broken, but her feet are moving in the right right direction. And uh, the Israelites are complaining not only to the wrong person, but they are willfully demanding that they go back to Egypt. So they are disobeying God. And the other thing is almost all laments circle back to a quieter faith. Uh, that they begin with this sort of in-your-face stuff, mm-hmm. and then they they uh, probably the only the only exception to that is Psalm 88, which just stays in the lament. But it is I, I don't know during really hard times in my life, I, mm-hmm. I, I Psalm 69, uh, 69 and 88 I think are the two darkest laments, mm-hmm. but 88 is by, is the darkest. Mm-hmm. But even 88 begins with this little phrase my friend David Pallison pointed out to me, uh, oh, God of my salvation. Uh, but but there, there is something about the darkness of the laments that functions like a mirror for your soul. Yeah, I, I remember I remember trying to read every book I could find on grief after we lost Mark. Because it was a, it was a place where. Yeah, it was a desert for for mm. us. Uh, we were like two wounded soldiers oh, yeah. trying to, to trying to drag each other off the battlefield. Mm. And um, I read everything mm. I could read, and 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 found myself one day uh, down at Perimeter Church in Atlanta. And I I was visiting their little bookstore that they have there, and all the way down at the bottom of the shelf, uh, all the way at the bottom, tucked away, was a copy of a book that was simply called Lament for a Son. Really. And uh, and uh, and it was written by a professor of uh, I, I believe he was at Messiah College, and I remember calling him after I read that book and telling him just as an author, for him to know that that book made more sense to me than any other book because he was raising the same questions that I was raising, and in quiet faith, we were struggling to understand the sovereignty of God in all of this. Yeah. And and so, you know, when we talk about lamenting, grief takes on different forms. There's there's different kinds of grief. 
And I'm thinking about the people for whom this resource is, is targeting. And I'm thinking about the disappointment that they might have when they're facing a, a tough situation with, like, like you folks have had to face uh, with your daughter. And so, so, Sharon, why don't you pick it up from here for a second? Yeah, um, Jill, I, I feel as though the, the conversation about lamenting is a perfect bridge into the aha moment that you had. You read about this in an article where you were on your 40th anniversary and you visited the pool at Bethsaida. And you said that as you were there, you thought about the many times you had prayed for the Lord to heal Kim. And I'm thinking there are probably parents who are listening who would be just as desperate with that prayer. You know, they would go to that pool if they thought that it would heal their child. Mm. Can you uh, just talk about that moment with us a little bit and especially talk to those parents who are looking for every possible means of healing mm. and, and then how you visualize yourself taking Jill to the foot of the cross? Yeah, it was really a beautiful moment just to be able to be in Israel and look, just look at that spot. And... um I guess one of the things that really hit me when I looked there, when I was there, was Sharon, was that that man laid for 38 years. And Mm -hmm. at that point, I think we, Kim was around 30. And um, I think when you work with disability, it's just so daily and the days just blend and it just it can kind of turn up into like a survival. You know, you still pray for healing and breakthroughs and you work, you work hard. I mean, I worked really hard and I still do with Kim, but that dailiness and you kind of think you get lost in that. And I was thinking how he knows every year, Jill, he knows every day, he knows every moment. And I found great peace in that. Uh, and then another thing that I found great peace in, I love how Jesus, how Jesus says to, says to the man, he's, Jesus is so kind. He walks up to this guy and he says, would you like to get well? He treats him with such dignity. And, for, and you know, when Kim was diagnosed with autism, it wasn't cool. <laughs> and sometimes oh autism now with all the ribbons, and I'm very thankful that there are many more people know about it. but. You know, when you had a meltdown in a grocery store, it was not a pretty thing when Kim was really little. And the dignity, the dignity that the king of kings stoops down to this man, knowing he'd been there 38 years and says, would you like to get well? It's just a beautiful thing. And he is the same. Jesus is the same. And, you know, it. I, I don't share this with many people, but to this day, I still pray that Kim will have breakthroughs with specific things. And one of the things is her speech. She uses a device, a computerized device to talk. Um, that's how she talks. And, you know, I, I still pray, you know, Lord, I pray that her voice would be clear enough that many people would understand her. And, um... I'm one of those dogged people. I I just kind of hang in there. So, you know, I still pray, but today is a good day. You know, I have what I need. And he knows, he absolutely knows, just like that man by the pool. It's like a snapshot that uh, picture was taken for you at the pool. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, of uh, the presence of the Lord and the fact that I have not deserted you, have not left you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have not uh, allowed this to come into your life in order to mm-hmm. harm you, but to, as we like to say, share, show you that there are treasures in, in darkness oh, uh, that I have stored up for you. Uh, and I remember we, shortly after we lost Mark, we went to Hawaii, uh, Sharon and I, and we we found that special place. Uh, we weren't looking for it. Uh, we came to a, a, a little place called Akaka Falls, and it's one of the most beautiful places you'll ever see in the world. Uh, and it was at that place, I, Sharon had walked off away from me, and I could see her off in the distance. Why don't you explain what, what was going on with you that day? It's kind of hard to talk about even now, but I just I felt as though... I just felt the presence of the Lord in that place. And I felt even the presence of Mark in a, a supernatural way. It was just such a, a, one of those treasures. It was as though it was shortly after Mark's death that we were there. It was a couple years later. And it was a moment where I just knew the Lord was saying, I've got you. I'm here. This life is temporary. Just keep trusting me. You're safely in my grip. And so is Mark. It was shortly after that that uh, somebody led me to Joel chapter 2 and verse 24, I think it is, where through the prophet he says, uh, I will restore to you the years the locust has eaten, mm-hmm. that great and mighty locust. And if the verse stopped there, I would say, that's, that's great. Uh, I thank God for that. But the verse continues, that great and mighty locust that I have sent. Mm-hmm. Um, and And... You know, I know what was intended in a different context than, than I took it. Mm-hmm. But I, I do know that what God was saying to us at that time was, this is not the end. This is the beginning. This is a brand new journey that you're on. And I, and I have a lot of things to do in your life in this journey. Uh, and I'm going to, when it's all said and done, I'm going to owe you nothing. It's all going to be worth it one day when you're able to look back and put all the pieces together. Mm-hmm. But like you, we still pray for those aha moments. We look for those, mm-hmm. those moments where God is in a special way saying something very uh, unique to us in our situation. Jill, mm-hmm. uh, that, that leads me to ask you this question about the scriptures that every child God has given to you, you've asked the Lord to give you a scripture that was specific to that child. And it seems kind of strange <laughs> That he gave you Psalm 9110 for Kim, mm-hmm. that no harm will befall you, no disaster will come near your tent. Mm-hmm. And knowing that uh, your life has been very challenging, but also joy-filled, how do you reconcile that scripture with Kim's impact on your family? I have to tell you, after she was born, I remember saying to the Lord, that I think it was the night when he showed me the road to the left or the right that we have talked about. I think I said to him, it looks like there's some harm here, Lord. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And um, that was like a claw in my brain. Uh, it was it was a claw in my brain. And I'm not the kind of person that continues to think about things. I kind of in the moment. And I, I, I repeatedly, repeatedly went back to the Lord and said, what's with that verse? You know, mm. a lot of harm has come here. One day, you you may have been in Hawaii for your moment when God spoke to you. Mm. I was actually a mile from my house 
We had two golden retrievers, one on my left and one on my right. I know exactly where I was. I was walking down a hill. It was a morning. It was a God. I, I, I don't know, but it was like God spoke to me out of the clear blue. I wasn't even thinking about no the verse, no harm will come to her. But it was like I heard him say, Jill, what you meant for just Kim, I meant for your whole family. Mm. And I, I just, I, it was like this mm. flood just mm. went through my whole being. Like, mm. wow. Like, mm. you, he has saved our family. He used Kim to save our family from ourselves. Mm. All, mm. each one of us. We wouldn't be here today. See, Jesus wouldn't be here. Many other things, special ed teachers, uh, just the, our children, their occupations. and But much more than that, our souls, our souls. Mm-hmm. He really used Kim to save us all. So we are mm-hmm. so we're eternally yeah. grateful. You know, we as we come to the close of this interview, uh, Paul, I, I want to ask you uh, in one of your other interviews, you listed five ways that Kim has taught you life lessons. Uh, Can you mention those life lessons and expand with the practical ways your family has responded to each one of them? Can I mention uh, three that that just sort of stand out to me? And they came from the combination of uh, the, the, the pressure that Kim brought into our family pressure Jill more than anybody. Jill felt the weight of that as a mom, not only just from the daily, you know, we split the daily care, but there's something uh, very daily about being a mom. That led me to a sabbatical. My epiphanies in uh, early 91 was a reverse epiphany, which was, I don't know how to love. Mm-hmm. And uh, God, would you show me what love love is? And and the three really big things that came out of that very practical things were uh, compassion instead of judging. The second one was honesty instead of harshness or withdrawal. And the third one was dependence instead of some form of self-will. And all of them came from uh, that God answered that question by just an immersion in the Gospels, asking the question again and again, how does Jesus love people? How does he love people? How does he relate to people? And the, the compassion thing, it so struck me that he he looks at people a lot. It's just really striking. It, it's a Luke particularly picks up this pattern of Jesus looking, feeling compassion and then acting. And. And when Jill was stressed, my, all my uh, reformed DNA kicked in and I would give her advice and good mm. theology. And what it was to learn not to discard that, the wisdom of that good theology, but to see that that what, what it is to care for another person, to, to, to be with them, to love Jill as she was uh, and not to fix her. Uh, and the second one was just honesty, the, the work of honesty. Jesus, you know, a simple honesty uh, is such a, a gift. And then the third one 
uh, I think has been and continues to be probably, I, I think in some ways the most important aspect of love is just a, a dependence on God because you know you can't do your life on your own. It's your will that where your will moves out of the center of your life to, to leave room for the spirit to be really the center. I uh, I really appreciate that, and I know uh, you put there's so many other um, life lessons that you've shared, and I know that they're written all throughout your books, and Kim's fingerprints are all over right. uh, the work that you have done and the ministry you have. Um, as we're as we are closing our conversation, I I have to ask you uh, to expand a little bit about my favorite quote from A Praying Life, and there you write when you stop trying to control your life. And instead, allow your anxieties and problems to bring you to God in prayer. You shift from worry to watching. You watch God weave his patterns in the story of your life. Instead of trying to be out front designing your life, you realize you're inside God's drama. As you wait, you begin to see him work, and your life begins to sparkle with wonder. You are learning to trust again. Can you share one experience, um, one more experience when through prayer, the Lord shifted you from worry to watching and how parents who are listening, who are really desperate for the same kind of faith they hear you sharing can experiencing, can experience that same transition in their own hearts? Maybe one, uh, I could finish the story of when Jill and I would yell at Kim to get back in bed, you know, to get back in bed and stop mm -hmm. pacing. When I went up and prayed for her, I just prayed God, God would just quiet her. And I noticed how agitated she, I could just feel her agitation under the covers. And two things struck me out of the blue and they were just things I knew. And, you know, at, at the time, I didn't, I thought about it, but it was just clearly the spirit nudging me. And the one thing was that I had underestimated Kim's ability to grow spiritually. And then that led to the second thing. And then thus to, to be able to control some of her own behavior. That was in December of 07. And in March, I could t I could look up and tell you the exact day when Kim's pacing almost completely stopped and it stopped because we moved. And what happened is we didn't realize that the, the there was a meat factory across the street and we moved to a house where we could kind of create a, like a little bit of an in-law suite for Kim. And the trucks that were bringing in the meat for the meat factory would wake Kim up. And that was so, I mean, that was an immediate answer to prayer. But all that year in 08, I thought about that, just that nudge from the Holy Spirit that I was underestimating Kim spiritually. And uh, that uh, led to me having devotions with Kim in the morning. And then I, I would, I, I would, she, she'd pray on her own with the speech computer. And I would uh, do dishes and, I, you know, good American multitasking. And I was just convicted of that. I thought I should really sit and I shouldn't do a job while Kim's praying. So finally, after three or four months of multitasking and, and the reason I was multitasking, because I had to get to work to write a book on prayer. And 
And uh, <laughs> when I finally just sat down with Kim right next to her and just watched her pray, her prayers blossom. And her praying is just a delight. I mean, she'll thank God for Disney. In fact, she did this morning. <laughs> Um, she thanked God she wasn't working her old job. She thanked God for Disney. And uh, Jill and I limit. Jill usually stops and we, we all three of us sit and pray. So it's like our third prayer time by the time Kim prays. And because we pray separately, then Jill and I pray together and then we pray with Kim. It's sort of the it's kind of the climax of the morning. And she's only about four or five minutes, but it's just the sweetest prayer and it's just a delight and we've seen her answer prayers and she she has several stories where god has helped her uh, that that are just very sweet uh, stories of god answering her prayers so she herself has a confidence that 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 god hears her and jill did you have any final thoughts there you know when right before the throne like when you pray with kim you know you know, his love for the weak and his love for the lowly, she's just such a gift. She's, I, I just can't even express that I have the privilege of um, being with Kim along her journey. It's really a gift. Jill, um, would you just uh, talk to the mother who is listening right now, who mm. maybe has a faith in God, but when she hears you talking about such an intimacy with Jesus, doesn't really know what you're talking about. I believe and I know that Jesus knows every single detail of all of our lives. He has all authority and all power. And his goal, his desire is that we know him. And when you just pray, I need help. I can't do this. Help me, Jesus. He's going to show up. And he, you're going to learn about him. And you're going to learn amazing ways because he's an incredible teacher. Through weakness, you're going to see his strength. Through insanity, you're going to find quiet waters. And through things that look like they're a waste, they're going to become gold. And that this road that he's chosen for us, he is goes before us, behind us, above us, beneath us, and the left and the right. And when you pray, he hears. He hears, and he will teach. Mark Inc. Ministries exist for the purpose of offering help and hope to hurting people. And if you want to know more about the Miller's ministry, uh, visit our website at markinc.org. That's M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org. And we'll be more than happy to direct you their way. The, uh, the hope of the gospel is that you would come to know and experience the Lord Jesus Christ in a personal way not just learning about him, but to learn him and to know him uh, in your own life. And we would like to help you with that. You can contact us by way of our website at markinc.org. And uh, we want to thank the Millers today for helping us to understand that love of Christ even more. We want to thank them for their willingness to 
share with us the lessons they have learned through the adversity that God has allowed to come their way, and through the blessings that come from their daughter, Kim. And we're so grateful for, for their ministry to us here today. I want to thank you, both of you, for your transparency and your willingness to uh, open yourselves up to the gospel uh, ministry of Christ in this very, very powerful way. Thank you for being a part of Marking Ministries. We really do appreciate you both.